Let's have an added word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for that scripture that reminds us. You really should say, before the creation of the world, the Lamb was slain. Which means you had us in mind long before we would even be sitting here today. You knew us by name. And you knew that this morning we would be here hearing this message at this place, at this time. Help us to hear your message for us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was at Andrews University, and as I was there, I was reminiscing a little bit. And I remember years ago when I was doing, doing my master's degree there, now I'm doing my doctorate there, that there was the shuffle of feet one day. I was sitting out in front of the seminary building, it has some steps like this, and off to the side was back then a little bench, and I was sitting there looking at a book, and I remember hearing just the, the shuffle of feet, you know, kind of like someone's feet are knocking together, maybe not purposefully, but there it was. And I remember hearing a conversation going on, and I looked up, and there was an individual who had someone beside him to his, to his left. They had their arm linked in there, and he had a cane. You can hear that cane tapping as, as he went. And this individual didn't have physical sight. Uh, his name was Ray. Uh, he was... A, he was uh, as far as sight impaired. And as I watched Ray, I was amazed because there he was navigating the stairs, navigating through the seminary. It's like, I remember after a few months watching this, every once in a while I'd bump into him and I'd cock to him every once in a while and just amazed, amazed at this individual. And how would you be amazed if you were in that situation? I'll tell you how. Can you imagine learning Hebrew, Greek, and eventually he goes on to his PhD to learn German and French and all the other scholarship that you have to do for a master's degree and a PhD and not have your sight. I remember how he did it, though. I remember watching him in the library for a few minutes as he had acquired audiobooks, and he would listen for hours. Because I know, because I would begin my research, and I'd walk out. He's still listening. And I remember seeing these audio CDs, these cases that were sitting there. He would order the book for the class, he would try to order an audio. And Braille, yeah, he did some of that too. But I just remember thinking to myself, how could I learn and have that determination like this guy has? And I'm sighted. I can see. And this guy seems to be acing all of his classes. <laughs> it's amazing. But God had a plan for Ray. And Ray was not shying back from it. And I remember after I graduated, he went on to, to pursue PhD studies. And some of you might have picked up an article by Hyveth Williams years later in 2010. And in that article, she recorded how here was an individual who had made his way through all of these studies with, with limitations that you and I would, would struggle with, and he had done it. He had gotten his master's degree. He had gotten his PhD. And now he was looking forward to what the Lord had planned for him in the future. He was just hoping for some form of meaningful ministry where he could use that knowledge and those skills for God's glory. And he wrote this, I stand at the end of one miracle and at the beginning of a thousand more. Imagine just getting one degree through all of that, those many long hours, all those books, but then he pursued the PhD. Then he saw himself, the Lord had a thousand more ahead of him. So many things that he felt the Lord wanted him to do at the beginning of a thousand more miracles. I rest, having finished one impossible journey and about to start what will seem as countless others. You ever feel that way? 
Maybe it's not pursuing a PhD or a master's degree or some kind of scholastic degree, but maybe it's something in your life that says, you know what, I'm here because of God's miracle. I don't know what the future holds, but I am expecting countless more miracles. And not only that, I have finished one impossible journey that I didn't think I could ever complete. And I'm about to start what will seem like, what will feel like countless others that lay ahead of me. Almost like climbing a mountain and then you realize that that was really not the mountain, that was just part of the mountain. <laughs> Coming upon a new horizon. That's an amazing thought. I think we can stand here today and believe that we are on the threshold of a miracle in our lives today and each day of our lives, if we would look for it. Maybe it's not necessarily what we've been reading, talking about as far as Ray McAllister. Maybe it's just trusting God's plan for our lives, that in all the twists and turns that lie ahead of us, that He is there, He is ultimately in control, and He will work it out. And not only trusting He is there, but inviting Him to join us in the journey. I mean, His presence through the Holy Spirit, He's everywhere. And the Bible says he has been deposited in our hearts. And what would be wonderful to invite him into our situations that we face in our lives? And really, it would be the plan of salvation working out one individual at a time. As we go to the book of Ephesians again this week, we're going to look at how the very first chapter gives us insights and how to experience Christ, how to have this presence that, yes, he exists and we trust him, but to have him carry out his history, his plan of salvation in our lives today. Uh, the book of Ephesians, some of you know all this. I'm just going to put it up on the screen. We know that the book of Ephesians was written more than likely by Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome. How do we know that? Well, we look at, we compare some things to Acts and other books, and it seems like this book leaves, continues on where Acts leaves off. In the book of Acts, you would think, since Acts was written around 65 AD, that it could have said, well, Paul got out of prison, everything, you know, he continued doing missionary work and all of that. But it just ends right there at the end of the book of Acts, and he's in prison. Almost like it leaves you hanging for a reason. And now as we get to Ephesians, here's somebody who has taken some twists and turns in life, and now he's imprisoned, and he writes a beautiful letter. A letter that reminds us of the love of God. A letter that tells us if we've lost our first love, we can regain it again. And we know this letter was circulated at a certain point, probably shared with more than one church. Uh, we know the, the uh, letter to the Laodiceans was circulated, and they say, we'll read that letter as well, but we don't have that one necessarily written down. And so as other letters were circulated, this one was circulated. Imagine you get this letter and your church maybe is struggling with some unity, maybe is struggling with people who believe that their destinies are fixed and there's no way they can change it. They've been born into a certain family. They've, the, even some people in the church back then even believed, some, some of the ones who'd been uh, maybe attending, some of them had these weird beliefs before they became Christians that their destinies were fixed based upon the stars. And so Paul is going to counteract a whole lot of stuff in this letter. False worship, beliefs about destiny, beliefs that somehow you can never change, it can never be the same. I remember when I was getting ready to walk out of the Rogue Valley Youth Correctional Facility, and I knew, and I knew what they were going to tell me when I left that place. The guy faced me right off when I was leaving, and he said, are you going to be back? I said, no, you'll never see me again. 
It's almost like they felt like destinies, you were in that situation, and therefore you're going to come right back to that situation. And the gospel, according to the Ephesians, is no, your destinies are not fixed. You can make a choice. You have part of this plan of salvation. And yes, the first few verses are emphasizing God's part, but as we progress next week and beyond, we're going to find our part is intrinsic as well. It's right there in the text. And so it points to us as individuals who can be united together in Christ, victorious in our walks with Him on our daily lives. And this first part talks about the plan of salvation. We'll go there now. Ephesians 1, verses 1-2, to Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Imagine you're imprisoned and you're saying, I'm able to write to you because of God's will. I'm locked up. It doesn't look like much, but, but it's by God's will that I'm writing to you. And he writes this beautiful greeting. He says, to God's holy people. That's the way Paul would greet them. He saw them as holy and blameless. He saw the church as being ones who had the character, in essence, this whole righteousness of Christ. Holy called out ones. And where are they located? In Ephesus. That city city of culture we looked at last week, a city of busyness, a city of false religion, an educated city, a city of all places where Paul is saying to them, the gospel can flourish there. It can change lives there. And what does he tell them at first thing? He calls them faithful in Christ Jesus, and he greets them. He says, grace and peace to you. You ever had a real busy week? You just need grace and peace. Grace. You need to recognize God's kindness in even allowing what happened during your week to go on. You don't see it now, but you look, we'll look back later and you will see that it was His favor that was really being shown to you by what you went through. But not only that, he says, not only will you look back or not only will you see my kind face in it eventually, but you will also have peace in it. It will not crush you. The problems that that church faced will not destroy that church in Ephesus, according to Paul. It's grace and peace to you. And what's that word? Shalom in the Old Testament? Who was the author of Shalom in the Old Testament? Well, we find that's what his name becomes in the New Testament. But it was the Lord, Yahweh, the the God of Israel. And so he's saying grace and peace to you, not from the God of Israel necessarily, though this is the same God, but from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the author of grace and peace? According to this text, Paul's saying it's coming from the Father. If you don't see the Father's kind face, that song, it said, what did it say? When shall I see my Father's face? Maybe some of us grew up and we didn't see our Father's face very much at all because He wasn't home. Or maybe some of us grew up and it was oftentimes anger or you had to do a certain... Almost like you had to please or you were wondering uneasy about who He was because you didn't know if you would ever please the guy. Or maybe you had a wonderful Father and you know exactly what this text is talking about. To see that kind look in His eye. And no, that kind look is for you. It's for you. He knows who you are. You're his child. And yeah, you'll make mistakes, and yeah, he'll have to correct you, but that father loves you. And so this father not only does that and shows that in his eye, but also 
He brings the peace. And then Paul goes on and does something, which we should all do very often. You know that song, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above you, heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. What is it praising Him for? Does it ever say in the song? It just says praise, right? He's holy. He's God. He's good. I mean, all heaven praises this guy. It's us in this world that really needs to learn how. And Paul starts off after the greeting and he says, Praise be to the God and our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in so many ways. When's the last time you paid the, our Father or our God, if you want to use that word, a compliment? You know how you... I know premarital counseling and, and enrichment counseling, we learn that one of the things that happens with couples is that the relationship breaks down because of lack of communication. Maybe some painful things have happened. They quit communicating. And one of the first assignments we give them is to try to, in, is try to almost jumpstart something back into that relationship. Is to say, pay your spouse one compliment a day. Not thank you for the meal, but that was really kind of you. I really appreciate that. Or maybe you're a builder type and you go out and you build something for your family and they're like, well, that's really nice. That looks, that's a good job, right? That's, that's, that's nice to receive that. But, but when the little child comes up beside you and says, that's real nice of you, that's a little different, isn't it? Yeah, I, I tried to do a good job, you know, I, but it was thanking you for the person you are rather than what you did. Not that what you did didn't matter. But this is what we're doing when we praise God. We say, you're so good to me. You work everything together so wonderfully. It's beyond me. I, I just, it's in the mornings I'm sitting there with my paper and my pen. I'm thinking, God, I just don't know what to say. It's amazing. And so he starts off with praise. And the thought I thought is, how often do I compliment? How often do I compliment God? Because here Paul starts off with it. And he says, not only has he given you peace and grace, but every spiritual blessing in Jesus. And we'll get down to that in Ephesians 4, but for now, tuck that away. He just lavishes on us so many things. And not only that, it says here, He chose us. All of us. Each one of us. Chose. Alright, stand up. Let's choose a basketball team today, or, or let's choose a flag football team today, right? You're, you're the best one over there. I remember standing around some teams and there were certain sports I knew I'd get chosen first out of. Football, right? And there were other sports I knew, basketball, that I would be chosen probably towards the last because I was a good basketball thief. I could literally take the ball from anybody. And I, could, I was taller and I could block the thing. But I knew that that wasn't really the most valuable player in the team. Is that what we're talking about here? That God just says, okay, you're, you're valuable for this. I think I'll choose you. Uh, you're, you're, you'll eventually make it. I think I'll choose you over here. No, you won't make it, so... Yeah, Hitler, I'm not choosing you over there. Is that what we're talking about? I mean, it would feed right into the philosophy of Hitler if God was like that. Because he blamed God for a lot of things that happened to him in his younger days. And so this is not what we're talking about here. Literally in the Greek it says, says, say. For he said us or he spoke us if you're going to speak about somebody you got to know them at some point i mean before i came became the pastor here 
even if someone would have gave me a directory, I would have went through and just been like, oh, it, it wouldn't mean much to me. I don't know anybody there, right? I could utter a name off that list, but this is talking about more than that. It's talking about God had a plan, and it's almost like he summoned each one of us for that plan. Now, it's our choice what we're going to do with that summons. It's our choice. But it's in the text, and it says he spoke to us. He spoke us, uttered us, which means he has to know our names to give a summons. And therefore, since when? Before the creation of the world, he summoned you and me. Isn't that amazing? That means that eternal value part up there is totally true. He saw down through the streams of time and he saw that it wouldn't just flow by and he would pluck somebody here and there out, but he would call people by name and he would say, come, be my child. And not only that, you're going to be holy and blameless in his sight. You're going to change. I'm going to change. We all know we're not that when we first are born and we all know that we're sinners according to the Bible. So to be holy and blameless means that when he summons us, something takes place when we respond. We begin to change. We become holy and blameless in his sight goes on, I'm going to emphasize this point here, he chose us before the creation of the world. When did he do it? Before the creation of the world. And this goes all the way down to the book of Revelation. Look at this in Revelation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. So, it's important then to have our names in the Lamb's book of life. It's important to be aware of the beast. But it's more important to make sure that between you and Christ, that you're following the Lamb wherever He goes, that your name is right there. That's your focus and my focus. Why? It's this Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Or some translations say before the foundations of the world. So, there's a book. That book involved somebody being slain, past action, and it's referring to the creation of the world. So before the creation of the world, we know he didn't die before the creation of the world, but there must have been a plan for him to die before the world began. And the plan was that amongst the Godhead, that he would die so that our names could be written in that book. So there was a plan of salvation at the beginning before our world ever fell. Why is that important? Well, it uses the word creation of the world here, which is this idea of, of putting down or digging or planting of a seed. In other words, before anything was ever conceived or brought about in this world, God had us in mind. And that same word, katabole, is that same word that occurs in Ephesians as well, before the creation of the world. And so what's the, this, this points out that Jesus is in the plan of salvation, before the Creator ever created anything in this world, we find He planned to save, die for each one of us. In order to die for each one of us, then that means He had to know each one of us by name. So He says, Murray, I know what it's going to be like. I know what's going to happen in your life, but at a certain point, that summons is going to come loud and clear, and you're going to have to respond. You're going to have to say yes or no to my summons. And his summons came to me in a piece of literature in the Douglas County Jail when I was 17 years old. And his summons comes to each one of you in different ways. And it comes to you also each day after you accept it. Paul says, I die daily. And so let's go back to that 
that uh, verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world. That was his plan. His plan was that as many as possible would be saved and that they would know by name that he had called them, that he had spoken to them, that the plan was just for each one of them as much as it is for me as well. And what's his goal? For us to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is an amazing description because if you reference this back to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, you find it's used to refer to the items of worship in the temple of God. Wow. Holy and blameless. Not just, not just a person in the people of Israel, if you will, but to be someone who had something to do, like with, without blemish, is another way of putting it in the Old Testament. We are to be without blemish in His sight. It's like, our lives will become an act of worship. That means, since I know my life and how I began and I had an unholy life, and you all know that you've sinned either in thought or in deed at some point, that a transformation must occur for me to get to that point. And next time we'll be looking at what that transformation looks like. Well, let's look at this structure so far. Some of you like structures. Here it is. So verses 1-4, to we've covered that. This shows us an overview of the plan that God wanted to call us each by name that happened way before the world began. It's like it echoes down through time to us in each one of our lives. And the goal of that plan was for us to become totally devoted worshipers of God. Look at Revelation. Worship Him who made. It goes all the way down to the end of Revelation. And now we're going to see how that takes place. It's by first looking at His love. Looking at this mystery. And then the result is as we look at his mystery, we then ask him, invite him into our lives. The positive of the Holy Spirit takes place. So in love, he predestined us for adoption. Now, some of you are going to probably shrug a lot of this off because Paul, in the first 14 verses, packs so many statements and words in here that I don't have time to unpack for you. So please bear with me. I'm going to bring it around to the main point. But, so you're going to get a lot of content here. And I'll mix in some illustrations to hopefully lighten it up. But he says, he, Paul says, in love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So predestination, adoption through Jesus is the means. That's a choice on God's behalf to come into humanity and therefore, we're going to find eventually we have a choice in the matter as well. It's not the arbitrary choosing predestination thinking here. It's actually a little bit deeper than that. It's pro horizo, pro before. Hey, we learned about the before, didn't we? Before the creation of the world. There was a plan, right? Before to plan. That's simply what it means. Predestined. It's not the whole choosing the winners and losers of this world. It's in love. He planned before. He had a plan place in place long ago. And it involved you and me. Is he going to work out human history to kind of help us all? Is he going to work in human history? Yes. Oftentimes, we find in the Bible, most of the time, it's by invitation. We find Daniel praying, others praying. That's really what we're doing is we're inviting God into the situation. And I remember my childhood looking back with my map of how things kind of went in my life. And I thought to myself, 
Well, there's a time when God was invited. There's a time when he wasn't invited to help. And look what happened. And if it wasn't for a loving person interceding on my behalf, asking God, inviting him into my world, I would be dead today. I can honestly say that. And so I look and I see, well, yeah, he has a plan. But enacting that plan is by invitation. He invites us to have a part in that. And he will not force that upon us. You say, well, what about that adoption idea? Well, let's deal with that one. And it's interesting. When he got a hold of Moses, did Moses have a choice in the matter? Burning bush, right? Moses makes every excuse possible. Doesn't he have a choice in the matter? Of course he does. But he responds to that call. He, he goes and becomes a, eventually a leader of Israel, leading that nation out of Israel. And then they have a choice as a nation. Are they going to worship that golden calf and the things of Egypt? Or are they going to worship God? And you find in Deuteronomy and in Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's the real expression in the Old Testament. So adoption is metaphorical in a sense. It, it's like when he... He wanted Israel. He had a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel. But it was their choice as far as the part that they would play in that plan. And do we see in scriptures, it was always a good choice that they made? In your Bible reading, you'll get to the book of Judges and you'll wonder uh, the choices they made. Uh, And as you read that, don't get bogged down in all those details, but realize that God still had a plan for them. There was was a lot of things going wrong, but he still was was wooing them and sending leaders and people to prophets to remind them and to say, here's still my plan for you. I'm not giving up on you. And so this is what it means to be adopted. It's the same way that he chose the nation of Israel. He had a plan for them, but they had to choose whether they'd be a part of that plan. You could adopt somebody physically, couldn't you? But are they really your children? Before you answer that, just think about it. To you they are, but in their mind, something has to take place, doesn't it? Can you imagine you adopted a child and, and maybe they were beyond like eight years of age and they had been extracted from their home and then now you have that child and they're constantly looking back, right? Maybe back to teddy bear, mommy days, or whatever. And there's a lot of healing that has to take place there. But can you imagine if the healing takes place enough where they now turn to you and say, Mom, Dad, they're now addressing you as mom or dad. Something had to have taken place there for them truly to be adopted in their own hearts by you. Even if you made a series of choices, they still would have to eventually respond to that adoption. And that's the same thing we're talking about here. God has made a series of choices. He's made it clear to each one of us that He loves us. But then we have to make a choice as well. Is He really our Father? Deep down. So we're not talking picking and choosing adoption papers. I'm adopting you and you're going to do exactly what I say. No, it has nothing to do with that. This is talking about in love He did this. And in Him, we now have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And so adoption is based upon the choices of the nation of Israel, and now we have choices as well. And the question I had was, could I ever choose to walk away from this great love? Read Timothy, and you find, some people would say, well, then you were never really His in the first place. 
that really doesn't fit logically. Because chosen means that you have that status through Jesus. Through something He did. And something you choose to believe in and you choose to accept. If there was no choice in the matter, then you would have no part to play in that. And therefore, it would be God's plan of salvation and you would just be some kind of puppet in the show. And so we have to choose to believe in Him and see in Him that we have that redemption. In Him, if we choose to believe, now all of a sudden, heaven's record, book of life, shows your name in it and my name in it. And is Satan very happy about that? He ain't happy about that at all. Think about it. Now he doesn't just have a risen... Our song said, were you there? Yeah, we were there in his mind. The plan of salvation was being fulfilled. He was going through every single step to Calvary to crush the head of the serpent, but he didn't stop there. He was resurrected. It should have said, were you there when he was risen from the tomb? There's another verse, I believe, that says that. And then there's another verse that says, were you there or are you going to be there when he comes again someday? So it doesn't end there at the cross. It's really just a death blow to Satan. And can you imagine Satan's dread and fear that Jesus could deal that kind of blow to his kingdom? One man, connected to heaven, fully divine, fully human, could crush his head. And now can you imagine the feeling when now he sees Jesus everywhere? In the spiritual realm, a transaction occurs at the cross where you die and now... Heaven doesn't see Murray anymore. It actually sees, according to Galatians 2.20, Christ living in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And so now imagine Satan's dread that now heaven sees Jesus' record in essence. And what does Satan now have a problem with? Jesus said, greater miracles than these you will do. It is a huge threat when even one person decides to follow Jesus. Imagine a whole group of them. And then imagine his fury to try to destroy them and he scatters them and they go everywhere and more groups pop up here and there and he's just like, oh, and he's so angry and wroth. Why is he so angry and wroth? Because he can't stop it. Yes. And he doesn't have enough time to stomp out all the Christians. And so we choose to believe and we experience this. And this is a mystery. And our young people, here's your scripture, your FBI answer. Who is this mystery? It's none other than Jesus himself. I'm giving you the answer. For our young people, I want them to mark it down. Ephesians chapter 1, 8 to 10. And this will bring us one step closer to the culmination of this text. Ephesians 1, verse 8. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's the cross. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He lavishes that. He's got those heavenly grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Okay, so it was wise and prudent of him to do that. Having made known, verse 9, to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? He's already told you a couple times in the text. Pro Arizzo, the plan before, the plan of salvation. That's the mystery of his will. That God himself would come and would die for you. His blood would be shed for you. Mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, when it all adds up, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are on earth. He would gather us all together in Jesus, one family in the universe, and that's it. That's his plan. 
He's gonna, he wants to adopt as many as will choose to be adopted. So who is the mystery? It's Jesus. In essence, comes to the world and he dies that and now we can accept not only his death, but his resurrection and his soon return. It's power for our lives. Mitchell, you got that written down? All right. And so the mystery and the wisdom, it's all in this plan of salvation. The revealing of the plan was meant to help us so that, so that we would see how much God values each one of us. That would give us a new outlook on life and we would say, if God values me that much and everybody else that much, then I better relate to that other person in a really... I mean, look how valuable that other person is. Look how this changes our relationships. Each one of us. The whole plan was for each one of us. So when I wrong you, then I need to, and it comes to my knowledge, I need to realize that not only am I somehow hurting your feelings, but I'm also, in a way, clouding your clear picture that you should be having focusing on Jesus. And so I need to take the steps to uncloud that. You're of that much value to, to God. You're of eternal value to not just Jesus, but to, should be for us. All of us are of that value. And not only the ones who sit here, but the ones outside of here as well. That would change our relationships if we viewed each other that way. View each other with a crown on their heads. I think eventually we're going to get a banner or something that has two crowns. The crown that he says... I've suffered for you, crown of thorns. And the crown that says, crown of life, circles the world, those two crowns. I've suffered for you, you're of that much value for me, and I've got a crown of victory waiting for you. See, each child, each man and woman with that crown on their heads. Are you willing to take a staff to their heads? That's what happens when we hurt each other. And the only person I'm willing to lay my crown down at their feet is not you or anybody else but Jesus' feet. You may hurt, something may hurt me in the church, but I'm not going to let that take away my focus on Him. And so this is wisdom. And it's a mystery because people outside of Christianity don't even understand it. How could this God cross all kinds of barriers that exist in our society? How could He tell somebody who's had a real terrible life up to that point that you don't have to live that life anymore? How can He tell a group that I don't care what differences you have, you're my disciples and I can merge you all together in love. This is a mystery. It's beyond understanding. It's like those cases that, that they needed off the top of that bus there in Africa. And I thought to myself, this is so strange and unusual. But as you read the Scriptures, you realize it's not. God is all the way down in the details like that. To someone looking from the outside of the Scripture, looking at it as just a historical or philosophical book, it is a mystery. But to those who are initiated in it, and they even believed back then in the Greco-Roman world, if you were initiated into a faith, you can understand things of that faith. All right. But it's more than that. The word mystery in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, we're trained as pastors to go to the book itself rather than go everywhere else. And as you go to Ephesians 5.32, it's a mystery that Paul shows you between Christ and his bride, the church. It's only understood in the relationship that Christ has between him and his church. And I can ask you this question right now, and myself. Is my relationship with Jesus more more intimate 
than any other human relationship, than any of my, than any of my human relationships. Because Paul points to the husband and wife and says, I now show you a mystery concerning Christ and his church. Just like you can't really understand after all those years, all right, that, tooth, that toothpaste roll, you know, uh, I don't squeeze it out of the middle anymore. I think, and I don't even know why, but I, I, I do things now that I don't even think about anymore. I can even complete a thought. I've only been married for, for going on 15 years, but I can, I can sometimes complete a thought, or my wife can complete a thought. How does that take place? I mean, it's a, you say, well, yeah, it's conditioned over time. You know the person over time. Now you know what they're like. Something happens in that relationship that over time you begin to become one in thinking. And there's sometimes when you're sitting there, you don't even have to say anything. Now, if you have a human relationship like that, then now the question is, is your relationship with God and my relationship with God more intimate than that? And if it's not, and I can honestly tell you that mine was not, even as a preacher, I was aware, I studied my Bible, I prayed, I went through my quarterly, I, I prepared sermons, all of that, and I would have an occasional, God, thank you. But it wasn't until I started opening my heart and saying, Lord, those old HMS Richards questions, you got this beautiful letter to me. What are you saying to me? What does this text have to do with my life? What are you inviting me to do today? Just asking him questions and letting him talk rather than just me read for content. It wasn't until I started doing that on a regular basis and then inviting him to look at my past and say, I said to him, honestly, Lord, where were you in that? Where were you in that? And I started listening and waiting in a way to, 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 to figure out from the scriptures and stuff what, what his thoughts were. It's not a mystery that he's hiding from us, but one that he's willing to confide to us. He is willing to engage us like he did Abraham, like he did Noah. And as far as I read my Bible, Moses and them, he says he's not a prophet, all these different things I know. He's my friend. I know him face to face. If that can take place in that part of the Bible, then surely here we are way down at the end, it should be taking place as well. Where I know his words, I know how he is related, and he is speaking that into my situation today as well. Not my situation speaking into him and trying to change him. Him changing me. And so, do I have an intimate relationship with God? I would say it's growing. At this point, it's really tangible. But in a valley, if you're going through that, it may become darker. And you may have to push through that to regain that. And so I feel like he's healed me through his plan. And I feel like eventually this mystery that I have experienced and you've experienced through the Word of God is going to be revealed to everyone. And the word wisdom is here. He's going to administrate and carry out his plan. He's going to put it into effect when the times reach their fulfillment so that he can bring everything into unity under heaven and earth and under Christ. 
And so at his first death, we find he died for us and he came at the exact time in the fullness of times. And now what we're looking forward to is the fullness of times at his second return. And there's a lot I can give you. I'm going to fast forward through here. We know that he lives again. That he longs to, in the fullness of time, wrap up this plan of salvation and to bring us home. And the real question is, am I willing to be under his headship? Because Paul talks about Christ is the one that he, that he gathers everyone to. Not to me or you, but to him. That's God's plan. And so the mystery is there. We find it's at the cross. We find that we look at the cross. We look at his resurrection and love. We see all of that. And then something happens. We choose to have that resurrection in our lives. We choose to have that power in our lives. And then we are, ready for, we are preparing for his soon return. That's the plan of salvation, according to Paul. Right there is really where we're at right now. If you've seen his love, then are you preparing for his return? In order that we, who were first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked within him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption, until the fullness of times. And so what am I choosing to do? I'm choosing to hope in Him, to hear His message, to allow that to just sink in and to, like Revelation talks about, will eventually be sealed. And really that begins now as well. The ultimate culmination is at the end times, but we have to begin to have that deposit now so then our experience will continue through then. And that's what they experience in the book of Acts. And this is uh, actually the apostles under the heavenly influence, heavenly illumination, the scriptures that Christ had explained to the disciples, they stood out before them with the luster of perfect truth. The veil that had prevented them from seeing to the end of that which had been abolished was now removed, and they comprehended with perfect clearness the object of Christ's mission and the nature of his kingdom. What is it? They could speak with power of the Savior, and as they unfolded to their hearers the plan of salvation, many were convicted and convinced. As they grasped it, as they said, that plan was for me, now they then took it out to everybody else, and people were convinced because it had changed them. The traditions and superstitions inculcated by the priests were swept away from their minds and the teachings of the Savior were accepted. We have to stand out of the way as pastors and leaders sometimes and just point people to Christ. She says that's what happened. They understood the plan and they explained it to those around us. So the plan of salvation before creating, he planned to save and die for us. He knew us by name. The plan of salvation that was revealed in that mystery that each one of us, if we truly love Jesus, he'll not just be a friend, but he will become like unto a spouse. One who would give his all for us. One that if somebody came to threaten us spiritually, they got to go through him first. Isn't that truly what happens to Job? They've got to go through God to touch God's friend. One whom the whole heavenly family 
comes to aid us because he's not dead. He is alive and he sends those reinforcements. One who says, soon and very soon, I'm going to unite all under me. And so Ray McAllister stood there and said, I stand at the end of one miracle and at the beginning of a thousand more. I rest having finished one impossible journey and about to start what will seem as countless others. And what did he go on to do? He go on to work at Christian Record Services. He, had, he developed a ministry of his own after that. And I think we too, we too, can recognize the plan of salvation and we can look forward to a soon return, but no, I'm not looking forward to a soon return for just the words, well done. I'm looking forward to hearing from God. I loved you all along. You're my child. I'm glad to see you. And those little ones? Yeah. Them too. But he loves us. What a wonderful plan he has. What wondrous love from our God. Father in heaven, such a somber note, but yet a wonderful truth. Your plan of salvation was for each one of us. You knew us by name. And yet, you chose to come and to die for each one of us, knowing our past, knowing our presence, and knowing our future. We're thankful for your plan. We pray you'll work it out in our lives. And we pray and ask and invite you to guide us into that beautiful day when we do see you face to face. And Lord, it'll be enough for you to say, I've loved you all along. Come, my child. Come. In Jesus' name, amen.